Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 328 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about things you should not do. So here's the thing. We give a lot of advice on the show. I mean, that's why you listen to us, so we can give you lots of advice. Unsolicited advice, even, except that you're downloading it. And basically, we tell you a lot of things that you should do in your business. Um, the thing is, there are probably lots of things you shouldn't do, and there are many things you shouldn't do, even though other people are doing them. And it might seem like, wow, they are totally doing the right thing. I should do exactly what they're doing. So we're going to try to give you uh, some ideas of things that you probably shouldn't do, even if they look popular and smart, um, and maybe some experience that we've got as well along these lines of doing what other people have done <laughs> and, uh, and making mistakes along the way. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Eric, I'll put you on the spot. You want to go first or should I go first? I'm good either way. Do you want me to go first? I can go for it. Go for it. So from my personal experience, maybe one that I'll start with, um, you see this a lot in the freelance world, especially like for people who say subcontract for like app dev agencies or what have you. But I'm going to say that you want to, as much as you can, avoid sticking with single clients for long periods of time in kind of a pseudo employment arrangement. And what I mean by this is, um, especially in a subcontracting situation, but maybe it's your own client where you you go out, you you hang out your shingle and you start freelancing and you get a call from, you know, an enterprise or, you know, an agency that staffs on behalf of an enterprise and they give you some kind of open ended gig, you know, come in for six months and help, you know, uplift our staff developing this or doing that or, you know, writing Java code or whatever. And it's open ended and you just kind of go there and you're there indefinitely, or maybe you're there and you're on a six month contract, but four months into it, they re-up you for another six months and it keeps going like that. So that's the first thing I'm gonna say you'll see a lot of, but I would not do that. Um, you know, if it's at first and you gotta pay the bills, I understand, but that is not a great business model for a freelancer because it, you know, and feel free to, to disagree with me here if you want, but it starts to look a lot like pseudo employment. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder if, if I'm in that mode, like, why did I go off on my own in the first place? Look, I can, I can see some advantages to that, right? Like you are going to probably make a bit more money than you did as an employee because you have less job security. They owe you less. They don't have to give you, depending on where you live, severance or notice or anything, but you are paying mm -hmm. for your own benefits. So it might even out, but I don't know. Like I can, I can see the attraction. Um, but I, yeah, it, it sort of does take away a bit of your freedom because then if you're in, if you're effectively an employee, everyone will feel it that way. And that means that'll be reflected in your rates. It'll be reflected in your flexibility. 
and it'll be reflected in their attitude toward you. Um, I don't think I ever did anything. I mean, I guess when I first started off, um, that's right, that's right. My, my first client was Time Warner, where I worked full time, and then they offered to be my first consulting client. And I can't remember who had this idea, whether it was me or them, but I ended up working for them 20 hours a week for my first few years with them. And that mm. was great because it was steady income, but it gave me another 20 hours a week to find other stuff. It sort of forced me to, to go off and find other things. So yeah. if you've got to do that, I would, I would try that. That's just so to me, that's kind of a horse of a different color. So like if, if I think about the people that go and do this and they take these, you know, year plus long gigs with a client working 40 hours a week, the the thing that strikes me about that is what happens is you're in this pseudo employment mode. So you're probably not really if you're getting calls about doing work for other clients, you're probably passing and you're getting into this mode where you're, you know, outreach, finding work, all of the stuff you do associated with a business kind of atrophies. And your risk profile just looks identical to that of an employee, except you have even looser connection to that organization. So if they decide, I mean, I guess if, you, if you're signing a six month contract or something, that's one thing. But if you're just kind of doing an hourly thing as you go, they can just decide. I mean, that's the whole attraction of um, for a company staffing contractors is they can just cut you loose at any time. So you've, you still got all this risk without a lot of guarantee and all of the stuff you do to acquire business is kind of going dormant versus this 20 hour a week model. My goodness, like that's kind of in a way the best of all worlds. You have this pretty steady, you know, not guaranteed, but, um, you know, predictable work while you can also be working on the business. Like that's, that's a nice thing to, uh, to find if you can. Yeah, I mean, I, I often tell people that as far as I'm concerned, and don't tell them this, but like Time Warner was basically the investor in my consulting company because it gave me that flexibility to build up my marketing chops and look around for clients and figure out what sorts of things I did and did not want to do while still having that that steady income or relatively steady income. Yeah, you know, now that you mentioned that, I've um, I've heard of people, and I think this is also a pretty slick kind of arrangement, that they go uh, with their current employer and they negotiate something like that as kind of a extended, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but like standing down of that employment where, you know, they're full time and they say, hey, I want to flip over to be a contractor. I'll still give you 20, 30 hours a week. Uh, but over the long haul, I'm going to wind that down and do my own thing. And I've, I've seen that work for people where it's a nice, uh, smooth runway, I guess, to hanging out your own shingle. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, look, what is the term like always be closing, always be selling, something like that. Part of being a freelancer is always finding new opportunities, talking to people about what you do. And if you're in a full-time gig or what's, what's effectively a full-time gig, yeah, I, I agree. Like those skills, do they, they don't feel as necessary. And so they don't stay as sharp and as strong. Um, I had a client or potential client once where I spoke to them and uh, I said, okay, you know, this sounds great. And they said, yeah, this sounds great. Um, and, and I said, well, can we do this two or three days a week? And they gave me this funny look like, no, no, we want an exclusive arrangement. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm still finishing my PhD dissertation. They said, oh, well, that's fine. That's fine. Like, if you need two days a week to work on that, that's fine. But if you're going to work for other clients, well, that just, like, that wouldn't work out. <laughs> um, and, and, like, that was a weird sort of attitude. And that was, like, a warning sign also because you don't want to work for people who think that they have exclusivity over you. It's a very different kind of thought process and relationship. 
And it also means they're not valuing you for your specific skills. They're valuing you just for your sort of, you know, hands and brains and sitting there encoding as a commodity. Yeah. That, yeah, that's again what I think of as like, it's a pseudo employment indicator that, you know, they really view you as a non-salaried employee if they're saying things to you like that. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, let's see. So one of the things that I was thinking of as something to avoid and something to avoid at first is doing everything. So after a bunch of years, like I'm now at the point, so I've been doing this for 25 years and I got a bunch of products and a few services and, you know, a large mailing list. And it seems really tempting to say, well, I know how I'll like get a good successful consulting business. I'll just do all of those things at once. Mm. And <laughs> I can promise you like, each of them took a long, long time. I'm still working on it, right? I'm still learning how to sell courses online. I'm still learning how to like, advertise myself. I'm certainly all sorts of different things. And if you bite off more than you can chew, it's just sort of destined to fail. Find, like, it's, it's a process as much as an end goal, right? And so look at the things you can do. Look at the things you want to do. And then say, okay, what can I do this year or in the next two years to bring me a step closer to that? I think I started my mailing list like four or five years ago. I think I've described on the show just some, some of the many mistakes I made with it in terms of how I wrote it, what I did with it, and so forth. It took me a long, long time to get to the point where I feel like, yeah, it's actually working pretty well. And I'm sure it could work even better if I you know, think about it more. So start small. Start a mailing list and write to it once a month. You know, put, a, put up a blog post once a month. Come up with a product every few months or once a year and put lots of effort into it so you can sort of see what's working and what's not. Just don't feel like you need to have, you know, a thousand products to, to launch your website because you absolutely positively do not. Hmm. That's a, it's a great call. Cause if I think of like do everything, I've, I've definitely seen this kind of pattern where, you know, I'm in touch with somebody that's an employee and then they go off on their own and it sort of seems like there's this, push where like they consume whether it's a podcast like this one or books or blogs or, or whatever it is and they synthesize everything they read that people who have their own businesses or practices are doing and they try to do all of those things so it's just a constant yes and like oh well, this person's talking about how they're doing a lot of successful marketing through their mailing list so i'll start one of those also a blog also a youtube channel and just on and on and on um yeah, like that's a good one. Don't don't spread yourself too thin, you know, uh, I guess pick your spots in the early going as to how you're going to find business and to what you're going to invest your time and energy in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm thinking now and, you know, again, maybe this one courts a little bit of controversy, but um, I would recommend, especially as a long term strategy, not relying on sites like Upwork and what have you. I mean, nothing against those sites in particular. They scratch an itch. But to me, that isn't a long range way of maintaining your pipeline. Um, they require people who are using those services as freelancers to do an awful lot of work. Like they're just kind of matchmaking for you, but you're still writing a lot of proposals. Um, you, you know, you're doing everything associated with finding your own work in a lot of ways. Um, but they're taking a cut and you're also tending kind of to race to the bottom on price. So if you got to do something to pay the bills and all that, you know, 
caveats here, but I wouldn't view that as a long range strategy. And I'm sure that there are people out there that maybe found success with it, but like, I would rather get away from a platform like that for managing my work funnel and pipeline um, and view that as sort of a weakness uh, in my approach to be corrected where, you know, later I'm finding work in other ways. I don't know. What do you think, Ruben? So I actually used Upwork back when it was called Elance for a while, and I was convinced that this was brilliant of me because here I have all these possible people from around the world and all these things, and and I even got some work, and I even got two great clients from it. But after a while, I realized, wow, I'm spending exactly what you just said. I'm spending so much time on proposals, and like I have to spend the time on the proposals because the prices that I want to charge are much higher than the people who are willing to take, you know, $2 an hour, $5 an hour, either because they're students or they're in, you know, cheaper countries. And so I really wanted to craft each proposal so it would draw people's attention and let them know my experience. Mm. And I spent, like, like the ROI, perhaps you could argue that it was worth it for the two clients that I got, each of whom lasted many, many years. But the enormous number of hours that I spent on nothing, like not getting anything, anything at all back. And on the very rare occasions when I would ask someone, why did you choose me? It was very simple. I was more expensive. It's completely what you said, it raced to the bottom. It It's not a bad place to start if you have nowhere else to go and you want to sort of maybe get some experience freelancing, get some experience with low, uh, low price projects. The other thing is, think of who, what kind of client or potential client is looking for the cheapest possible solution. They are not going to be reliable. They're not going to be good to you. They're not going to be your friends. I mean, I one of the biggest projects I ever got, this was already, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe even more, 15 years ago on, on Elance, again, up, Upwork now. Um, and it was this huge project for someone in the US dealing with like technology for sending mail and for filtering mail. It was super cool. And basically, when it came time to send it in, we sent it in and he was like, well, this is not what I wanted at all. And stiffed us for almost everything. And <sighs> I was so, like, I, I, this had never happened to me before. I was livid. I had gotten a subcontractor to work on this project in particular. It was humiliating. It was oh, angry. Wow. And by the way, like I see his name every so often. It was like a brilliant entrepreneur on the internet. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> yeah, because he stiffed a lot of people along the way. Um and these, these um, places will say, well, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, um, maybe yes and maybe no, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. So it's a nice sort of, if you're a student, if you're first starting out, you want to just try things out. Maybe you want to sort of get some experience, some, some technologies you don't know well. If the goal is not to have long-term clients, if the goal is not to make lots of money, maybe. But as a long-term strategy, oh my God, it, it'll just like open the door to lots of headaches, I think. Yeah, I mean, I could see it working maybe too for Moonlighters um, or if you're looking to kind of, you know, I guess in the beginning build a little bit of a portfolio of experience. Like it's not that I'm saying this can't work in any way for anyone. It's just I feel like if you're, you know, five year plan as a freelancer is to rely on these types of sites that I would revisit that plan. And 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 that was my plan to some degree. Like I really thought that I was doing great with it and it took some uh, like being stiffed and it took like just sort of looking at how much time I was spending on it versus how many projects I was getting to finally start seeing the reality there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is too bad. Cause I think, I mean, are there any like high value sites like this? I know I've heard of them and seen them. I just don't know if they have any traction. You know, I read an interesting article, um, someone in the Slack I was in 
sent this article and it was kind of about how sites like that used to do more of the work and project curation and they would almost subcontract to um uh, to the people that were participating so they'd be vetting and handling some of the project management and that that was back in the day you know early 2000s better for the freelancer and then there was this move towards it being a platform rather than a service and it was kind of interesting. I'll have to go see if I can find it. Maybe we can, you know, I'll throw it in as a pick or something. But um, it talked about like the evolution of this and uh, how the whole industry has moved kind of in this direction. So I don't know if there are some that are still kind of going with the more curated older model. Seems like maybe not. Um, and another kind of interesting point of this whole movement too is that it creates this situation where you don't really have a lot of differentiation with the platforms. So like all of the people using them are using all of the platforms indiscriminately. Um, so it's, it's like fragmentation in the race to the bottom too. It was, uh, yeah, I'll have to see if I can find that. It was pretty interesting. So that's a long answer to the short question. Like I, I don't know if there are any that are more, I guess, practitioner or freelancer focused. There's one, um, I just had to look up the name, which I'm, I'm sure they'll be delighted with their branding. I called TopTal. And they try to sort of say, we have the best people and we pay high rates. So it's like great for everyone. Um, yeah. Now, I, I have a, a friend who's worked for them and he was like, yeah, their rates aren't as good as they like to say. Um, and I actually interviewed with them and I failed with flying colors, you might say. Because um, the the questions they were asking were all these like nitty gritty computer sciencey big O notation sorts of things that I sort of kind of know but not well enough for what they wanted and it was just like not interesting to me to continue there. Um, so I'm sure that for some people they're like a better fit, but nothing is going to be a panacea. The best thing is when you have your clients who are loyal to you and are working directly with you and just keep coming back for more work because they love you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, believe it or not, especially if you're new to this, like things like word of mouth, inbound leads, you know, any any form of marketing you're doing, that does start to show up for you after a while. So like it might not seem like it at first. It might seem like, you know, these types of sites and interviews or whatever are the only way to go about it. But it does start to happen. You will start getting phone calls from people that are like, hey, I worked with Bill from this engagement and he recommended you. Are you available? So like keep the faith. Those things do happen on a long enough timeline. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, trying to think. All right, so here's a mistake that I made at the beginning of my career, and it took a long time for me to shake it, which is try, uh, sort of like, the, again, trying to do everything, but it was trying to do everything in terms of like offering too many solutions in too many directions. Um, basically, like, I mean, if someone comes to you and says, would you, you know, I'm willing to pay, would you do X? Your answer should not be yes, for any X. <laughs> Your answer should be yes, <laughs> which I 100% did. In fact, like I, back when, I mean, this was again in like the early 2000s when I had a few people even working for me. Um, and I said, one of our great values, like I remember like touting this, oh my God, so embarrassing to say, but like, I remember saying, um, you know, other companies, they specialize in PHP or they specialize in Perl or they specialize in whatever it's going to be. And we don't want to do that because we want to offer whatever solutions our clients need. And that sounds sort of nice on the surface of it. And at the beginning, at least, it's good for like getting some business if people come to you, but you're not going to get any sort of traction in a niche. 
And so I definitely know people who are like, oh, I'm doing, you know, this month I'm doing this project and, and it's in mobile. And the next month I'm doing a project because I've always been interested in databases. And then, you know, I've also been really interested in operating systems. So I'm doing something for someone's Linux kernel. And those all might be really interesting and people might be interested in having you do that stuff. And yet, and yet, like, they're not going to be able to recommend you. There's not going to be this, uh, shall we say, critical mass of recommendations for you in any one area because no one's going to know you really, really well in any one area. Yeah, I actually, um, that this was a note I had there on uh, for me as well, like would say yes to all business. Um, I can relate to that. And it's absolutely... 100% my experience, like this is a natural thing to do. Somebody wants help with whatever, and you know, you're a pretty good technologist, you can figure that out. And as you keep doing that, you're sort of always learning on the job. And not that that's inherently a bad thing. I mean, any knowledge working kind of project, any software related project is going to involve some element of learning on the job. We're not solving cookie cutter problems. But, uh, you know, by the same token, if you're always offering, you know, a kind of similar, more focused solution, you're developing a lot of operational efficiency, you're developing a lot of knowledge and expertise, you can can start start to offer sort of expert consulting around that and move up the trust pyramid or, or whatever you want to call it within organizations. If you're always doing different work, there's no accumulation of knowledge and skill, you're just kind of skipping from one thing to the next. And you know, it can be fun and it can be rewarding, but you're not really building a business as much. You're just kind of building an unrelated sequence of things that you've done. It's sort of like if I if I zoom out and I imagine, you, you know, forget like the software world. It's sort of like if you just take a series of odd jobs where, you know, you spent a year fixing up houses and then another year, you know, where you started training to be an accountant and then maybe you drove a bus. <laughs> 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 Cool and fun, but a business that is not. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I like that analogy a lot. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hey, folks, let me tell you about a really cool thing. It's the .tech domains. Listen, you work in tech. I work in tech. We all do things that affect technology. So why not have it reflected in our domain names? If you head over to get.tech or head over to your favorite domain registrar, you can pick up a .tech domain right now. In fact, if you want to get show notes for this show, you can check them out at freelancershow.tech. All right, so back when I was in, uh, back when I was in college, it was like, maybe it's still this way in college, maybe it's not everywhere, but it was like quite a badge of honor to show how little you were sleeping and how hard you were working. And I know so many people, not just freelancers, but people in technology who are like, oh, yeah, I'm working, you know, 18 hour days, 20 hour days, whatever it is. Um, and so it might seem like if you want to run your own freelance business, you have to do that. No, you don't. You might want to. You might even do it. Right. Like I work way too many hours and I've been cutting down on them and sleeping more and being, I think, a better husband slash father slash human being uh, over the last, say, year or so. That said... Like, you don't have to do it. And if you are doing that, you're probably doing something wrong. Now, you are running a business, so it's not going to be 9 to 5. It's not just going to be 40 hours a week. Like, that, that is certainly true. Like, I just spoke to my 16-year-old who has her eyes set on running her own technology business um, tomorrow if she could quit high school. Believe me. Uh, and she would love to do that. And she said to be something like, well, I can't wait to have a job where I don't have to work all these crazy hours. And I said to her, well, like, if you run your own business, you will have to do some of that. And sometimes you'll have deadlines. 
but um, it shouldn't be all the time. So keeping what everyone likes to call work-life balance in mind and your family in mind and your emotional health in mind, very, very important. And a long-run win, even if it might be feel like a short-term loss. Yeah, I think that's an, another great call. Um, I'll add to that, that if you're, like say you're working um, some kind of corporate job, nine to five, 40 hours a week, whatever the case may be, and then you leave to go off on your own and you're making a little bit more money, but you're wearing it as a badge of honor that you're burning the midnight oil, working these 80 or 90 hour weeks, you're actually not very efficient. Like that's not, <laughs> it's not something to be proud of per se, because now you're working twice as hard for a similar-ish amount of money. So a good way to sort of pull back and look at that is sure you can, maybe you'll get really caught up and enjoy working on the business. It's almost like a hobby. I, this happens to me at times where I'll wind up spending the evening researching something cause I'm interested. And there's this line that blurs where growing your business is sort of fun. But that being said, if you have to be exhausted working weekends all the time, et cetera, that's a smell. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the business equivalent of a code smell. If you're having to put in that much time, it suggests that maybe what you're doing is it certainly isn't uh, efficient and it may not even be sustainable over the long haul because if you like hired someone to backfill you and, and you were trying to explain this to them and say like, well, okay, the key to this business is that somebody works more than twice what anybody should be expected to work. You're not going to get a lot of investors in that business. <laughs> that's, that's not a good sign. So yeah, I think that's a great point that you might see everybody you know, bragging about how many hours they work and defining the hustle as 18 hour work days. Do not, do not let that uh, influence you or make you think that that's what it is to have your own business. So let's see, here's one I've got. I imagine Jonathan will approve of this one, but one thing that I would suggest um, that that's like nearly universal is don't have an hourly rate that you take around with you the way that like salaried employees take their salary, you know, like, Hey, I, I make a hundred K a year or whatever the salary may be. Well, freelancer, you go off on your own and it's almost like your hourly rate is like a part of you. And that when you go to raise that hourly rate by five bucks an hour or something, it's like you're justifying the uh, promotion to the world. <laughs> I would suggest, um, I mean, I don't do anything anymore where I ever bill by the hour or really generally per unit of time. I've gotten away from that and never been happier. But um, if you are going to bill by the hour, fine, whatever. But don't have like your standard hourly rate is something I would advise. Um, this can seem really counterintuitive, but like it makes everything really kind of about you and your background rather than the client, you know, what the work is worth, et cetera. Um, don't take this to say that you should just agree to work for whatever hourly rate a client wants to pay, but like get in the habit of kind of looking at the work and, and, and maybe thinking about how you would price it differently, um, depending on different situations. And I would say even above that, if you can get to the point where you're pricing work kind of more in productized service type units, as opposed to just indefinite hourly stuff, that's a good thing to do as well. So uh, that's my take on something you probably see almost everyone do. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I admit that I still have an hourly rate when I do some consulting work, but it's like, so for example, just yesterday, two days ago, I started talking to someone where the company is using some Python and they need someone just to like talk to their programmer for a few hours and see what's going on with her and maybe give her some mentoring over time. And I could have come to some sort of value-based agreement, but you know what? I'm happy to just like, you know, start the clock, stop the clock there. 
But um, for sort of larger projects, look, I, I, I guess from project work, I haven't done a lot of it lately. And so going, you know, going back to it, I would probably try to do more value-based pricing or project-based pricing as well. Um, it definitely does feel like a bit of a sort of noose around your neck to have a whole hourly pricing thing. But I definitely remember many, many, many times what you just said, which is like, you know, people would say, what's your hourly rate? And it was almost like part of my business card. Hi, I'm Ruben. I program an X and my I take Y per hour, right? It was just like mm-hmm. automatically rolled off the tongue. And I felt like that was such a part of me that, right, asking for more, even from someone who had never heard of me before, seemed weird. Like, well, this, this is part of my identity. Yeah, you definitely want to sort of divorce your rate from you. And I mean, even now with my training, so I, I charge different amounts. Um, I charge per day for my training, but I charge different amounts in different, com- uh, in different countries. So I don't even advertise my rates. And then I you know, speak to someone, find out where they're from, and then I can sort of price it appropriately. And that's yeah. half, halfway between value-based and hourly and just halfway time sort of play the market. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key, like situational type pricing, making it about the client, whether it's, um, you know, geography or their needs or or what have you, uh, I think opens up a lot more flexibility and gives you kind of a better way to reason about your clients and their business as opposed to like, you know, take it or leave it. This is what I'm worth. Um, I'll also qualify this by saying that um, that's more of an intrinsic concern. Like if you are going to do something, you know, like, I can think of some recent consulting I did where um, it was a pretty targeted tactical thing. And I quoted them, you know, something that was like a daily rate or what have you. You don't necessarily need to hesitate or whatever, whereas the client's concerned, like in a situation where you're going to quote something in that sort of fashion, um, you can, you know, respond to that quickly. You can have a figure that you would give them off the top or whatever. I'm not necessarily advocating against that. It's more like baking it into your identity. Like I work at this rate, almost like it's it's your salary as far as the world is concerned. That's mm. what I'm kind of advising to stay away from. Right, right, right. I would say uh, another thing I'd say you don't have to do, suggest you don't have to do is um, have all this, I don't know, business stuff that people seem to feel like they need. For example a fancy website and always be on Twitter and always be on Instagram and have business cards and white papers and on and on and on. You can have a perfectly reasonable um, consulting company without business cards, without being on Twitter all the time and having a really, really, really bare bones website or even, believe it or not, no website at all. If you're doing stuff, that if you have clients, even one or two clients at first who like what you're doing, they probably didn't find you through your website. I mean, I find even with all my training stuff and every six months, eight months, I sort of update my website and change around what I've got there. Virtually none of my clients have ever come to me via my website. Um, indeed, what will happen is they'll call me up and say, hey, we hear you do Python training. And I'll talk to them and they'll say, well, you know, what's the syllabus for your course? And I'll say, why don't you go to my website? They'll be like, oh, really? It's on your website. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when it's clear they've never looked at my website before. Um, <laughs> so... That means that if I didn't have a website whatsoever, it wouldn't make a difference with that work. So I'm not saying like ignore all these communication things, but don't feel like you need to constantly be a social media master and have the fanciest, coolest website and the most up-to-date business cards because if you don't have these, you'll lose business. Those are not the main reasons people are going to hire you. And again, over time, you'll add those things, maybe, as you need them. 
Yeah, you know, that actually, I'll piggyback there and say, too, I've seen this a lot where people are in the nine to five world and they want to, you know, either moonlight, go off on their own and start a business, whatever the case may be. And they will use the absence of those things as a barrier to entry and say, like, well, I am going to do that. It's really on my radar. It's my goal. But, you know, first I got to get the website and I got to do this, that and the other. And they will put off this thing they want to do because they view these as requirements. So I think not only if you're already on your own, should you not view it as necessarily essential if it's not scratching an itch you have. But please don't let it stop you from, you know, exploring uh, other work possibilities, moonlighting and freelancing and such, because you do not need those things. Just get started helping people, and then you know the rest will kind of fall into place. You'll figure out what you need to add as you go. I'm trying to think of – so this one kind of splits in two different ways, and I guess maybe there's a line to walk, but I could see like people going to one extreme or the other when it comes to, say, soliciting help where you know maybe people dive into that too much, like you get started out of the gate hiring someone like a VA or you wait too long to do that. Um, I'm trying to think of which of those I see more commonly and which I would sort of, I think probably at least my experience. Um, and if I think of more people around me, the, the experience is more that they wait too long to get help in certain areas, you know? So if you see a lot of freelancers out there that are, you know, doing their own taxes, corporate taxes, or keeping their own books or doing all these different things and, you know, talking about how much of their time it occupies like the the thing i think that's more common is that you should zag in the direction of um not hesitating to you know when you got a bit of money for it get help with stuff yeah this this is something that i've been debating i don't have any sort of assistant virtual or otherwise i mean my accountant's office has a bookkeeper who spends way too much time on my stuff and by the way too much time i mean she probably given how much i'm forcing her to do for me, they should be charging me more. Uh, they, they better not listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, but aside from that, I don't really have anyone helping me with things. And increasingly, I'm thinking, hmm, if I had someone, I could throw them this and this and this to do for me, and I wouldn't have to do it myself. But, you know, I'm such a control freak, and I've been writing things myself for so long, it's hard to see how to let go. But I increasingly see how much time I'm spending on just, like, silly, stupid things. And I, th- I think I'm, I'm almost there in, in being ready to do it. So, you know, I think it just popped into my head, I think, why I had two such disparate ideas on this. I, th- I think the main thing is that we all maybe tend to wait too long to get this kind of help. But then I feel that, like, there's this fraction of, you know, the business-owning population, especially, like, um, you know, maybe the digital nomad set that they go, they read the four-hour work week. And then after that, you know, they want to VA all the things And so like suddenly they flip over to like, you know, I'm going to hire a virtual assistant to do like everything, which I don't think is a great strategy either. So I think that's why my brain was going two directions that, you know, I see the general population of freelancers uh, maybe wait too long for this. And then there's a set that like dives way too far into getting help to where like, you know, they're outsourcing stuff they haven't even begun to optimize or or make efficient. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, st- I still like, and, and people tell me, they're like, oh, you should really get someone to help you with this stuff. And I feel like, well, it's not that much, but I guess that's the whole point of having like a virtual assistant that it doesn't have to be that many hours and you can sort of hire them by the hour or by the week and then they take care of a few things, but it doesn't have to be a huge, huge number. Yeah, 
I mean, like speaking from my own experience, it's been, I've always been hesitant to do it. I've always had the, like every time I've hired for anyone, anything in any capacity, I've had this feeling like, I don't know that this is actually going to save me anything. I feel like it's maybe easier just to keep doing it myself. And then eventually it comes to a head. I get, you know, burned out or it becomes silly. And then like, this has happened a few times with hit subscribe in various ways. Like we make a hire and the feeling I have is immediately within a week or two, like, why didn't I do that like six months ago? <laughs> my <laughs> life is so much easier now. So I think that's been my, even like in the very beginning with the businesses, I used to keep all the books for a long time, like longer than I should have. Didn't have wow. an accountant. Um, I used to do the taxes, the whole nine yards. Wow. I'm, I'm somewhere between really impressed and really horrified. I think that's the right place to be in <laughs> and, and when I would look back in retrospect, like now I think of doing the books for this business as it was growing for as long as I didn't thinking like that was ridiculous. Like, I, you know, I wasn't focused on uh, client acquisition or growth or any of the things I could have been doing. Like, what was I doing sitting there and, you know, quick and desktop, like reconciling invoices and <laughs> like, why did I do that? Wow. Um, so here's something else, like, especially in the, especially in technology, right? There are all these new technologies, and I guess, doubly, especially in software that come out, I guess, like triply, especially in the JavaScript world, which I'm really not so in tune with anymore, but every few months, there's some new flash in the pan, some like fancy new technology that people get really excited about. And so, and there's always a need, right? So you'll see companies say, well, last month, you know, uh, you know, such and such a company announced such and such a library. We need people with 10 years experience with it. Um, <laughs> so besides the like utter ridiculousness of such sorts of things, it's very tempting to sort of jump onto these new trends because they are cool and because they're fun. And as technology people, we want to work with cool and fun software and the latest stuff, and the latest shiny toys. But that doesn't make for a sustainable business necessarily. And so it's sort of like slow and steady will win. Um, I mean, I continue to be somewhat amazed and gratified that I'm teaching Python, a language that was written almost 30 years ago. Now, granted, it wasn't where it is now then, but like it's, it's, it's been growing and so forth, but it's not shiny and new. It's just a business need that many people have uh, that is helping me to pay the mortgage and so forth. And so think about what your interests are, think about where your abilities are, and think about like what businesses need, not just now, but will need another six months or a year. And try to specialize in something like that that might not seem super, super cool, but that will be sustainable that you can grow as an expert in and use that expertise two, five, even maybe 10 years down the road. Yeah, you know, um, as you were talking about this, it strikes me too that I think it's, so there's the element that you mentioned of um, this is new and it's exciting and I'm interested. <clears throat> but then I think it's also um, that there's a tendency for freelancers in the programming world to convince themselves of a business case for this, where it takes the form of like, hey, if I had just gotten in on blockchain when it was brand new, I would be a blockchain expert. And so there's this maybe idea that if you jump on something that's brand new and kind of corner the expertise market on it, you will be, you know, the whatever person. And I would 
definitely try to resist that impulse because number one, you're not the only person that has that idea. And number two, if you do something like that, you are waging a very heavy bet that that you know, technology succeeds and keeps going. And for every blockchain out there, there's, you know, I can't think of a great example off the top because that's the nature of those things. You, you, <laughs> you mean see every, things that come out and then they're not a thing anymore. You mean and for every so blockchain, like, there's actually something successful? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of like, you know, how much demand is out there for like Delphi programmers or whatever. I mean, like a little perhaps, but like, you know, for every um, C sharp, there's a Delphi or whatever. Um so anyway, the, the, I think like you want to hesitate to chase the new and shiny for a variety of reasons. One, don't chase it just because it's new and shiny. That's not a solid business strategy. But two, don't assume that you're making an accurate bet on what is going to be a thing in the future and making a, a business case like, you, you know, if you the, what is it, the Gartner hype cycle where um, it's at the peak anyway. If you're not at the bleeding edge, if you're kind of a fast follower or even mainstream, there are a lot of businesses uh, to be developed and a lot of nice practices to be had with established technologies. Like, you know, there's plenty of stuff out there that companies need. You know, every company in the world isn't adopting everything as it comes out. Like, you could still probably make a pretty nice living, like upgrading COBOL systems to enterprise Java, even though nobody's probably talked about that in any exciting way for years and years. In fact, that is a fantastic example. Like, I, I had a friend uh, who told me that if I wanted to make tons and tons of money as a consultant, I should become a COBOL programmer. Oh, my, yes. Right? Because like, <laughs> really the, place, the place that use it have lots of money. These are absolutely vital systems, and no one wants to go do that. Everyone's doing mobile development, right? So it might not be sexy, but it'll pay the bills and then some. That is, um, you, you know, now that you like mentioned that, I've done a lot of like consulting with enterprises over the years, and I can't tell you how common a problem it is, you know, at, at banks, at, you know, systems that have been around for a long time where they have some kind of like, you know, COBOL based um, green screen mainframe type system at the heart of everything and try as they might, they've not been able to get completely away from it. And all of those programmers have aged out of the workforce. And so these companies are calling up these COBOL developers that are like 70 years old and really don't want to work. And they just keep throwing money at them until eventually they agree to come and, you know, patch whatever <laughs> and go back into retirement. I mean, like, so you can look for a niche and, and a way to make money and, you know, what seem like the unlikeliest of places, including like, you know, at the very lagging end of technological trends. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a great call, Ruben. You don't need to, to chase everything and being at the bleeding edge. And that's actually, I would say, a pretty risky play is to try to be at the bleeding edge. So so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll open the uh, invitation if, if uh, any of our listeners have ideas for additional things that they have heard or that they have done uh, that they regret or, or, the, or they're happy that they didn't do, you can always drop us a line and we will be happy to hear it and maybe talk about those in a future show. Um, so I guess uh, let's let's move into picks. Eric, what you got? All right. Well, um, let's see. The first thing I've got is it's called Grambler. I haven't tried it yet. I just downloaded it, but um, I didn't know this was a thing until recently. Um, you know how on Instagram, or maybe you do or don't know this, but on Instagram you can only um, post pictures from your phone, 
Well, it, we're looking into with hit subscribe uh, more ways to help like our clients promote their content. And so you're not going to really operationalize content promotion through somebody's mobile device, most likely for a company of any serious size. Uh, so Grambler is a tool that lets you post images to Instagram from a desktop. So um, I have not tried it yet, but I do have it downloaded and um, this is what it purports to be able to do. So if you didn't know that was a thing, uh, give it a try. And then let's see, the other that I had down here was um, I just recently, probably long overdue, updated my Windows 10 version. And now if you hit like Windows key V, you have this option to do this like rotating um, copy buffer. So you can actually set it up to where you can cycle through the last, you know, N entries that you've um, hit control C and then paste, which I thought is kind of cool. You used to have to download like a utility to do that. And then shoot, I, there was going to be a third, and it was something I was seeing in the episode. Oh, it was um, the link to the article about, um, you know, kind of freelance matchmaking sites 2.0. So I'll, I'll grab that and uh, put it into the uh, picks here. And that's all I've got. Excellent. By the way, the uh, like the rotating uh, um, sort of buffer, of course, I have to put in the snide remark about it. Well, I've been using Emacs since 1988, and it's done that since then. But um, Windows might be a tad more popular than Emacs. <laughs> uh, oh, so I do think that there are like IDEs and um, and text editors and whatnot that will let you do that within their world. But this is like now a general Windows thing that you can do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That, that actually is, is very clever. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I've got two picks. We're recording this in early April. So I think it was yesterday on April 1st, um, Linux Journal celebrated 25 years. I've been writing for them just about every month for the last 23 years. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know which of those is more shocking. Um, in any event, it's not just my writing. You can even take my writing out of it. But it's a great magazine. Um, you should take a look at it if you're interested in open source software at all. Uh, and the focus has really been since the sort of near death or even death and revival about a year ago has been a lot on privacy, has been a lot on uh, what's happening with your data. It's been a lot on how, would, how do we want the internet to look uh, from the perspective of technology and software um, as open source users and contributors. So I definitely think if you can, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, the Linux Journal is a great place to look, not just, as I said, my articles. And looking forward a little bit, um, a month from now, from when we're recording, is uh, PyCon, the annual Python convention conference. And I went for my first time last year and I had a complete and utter blast. And it was just one of the most exciting, interesting things I've ever done. I'm going back this year. So if you're going to be there, definitely look me up. And if, if, you're not, if you're not going to be there and you're not interested in Python, find conferences in your area, um, especially if you're freelancing and double especially if you're freelancing from home. Um, it's a fun to get out, talk to other people. It's not necessarily good for business per se. Um, although I'll have more to say about that in a month after the conference, I can tell you how that did or did not go. But basically to be with your peers, to learn something, to get your engines sort of revved up again, and then come back and uh, be ready to do lots of interesting, cool work, I think is uh, very much worthwhile. All right. Well, that is our episode for today. Um, thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Eric, as usual. And we will be with you next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.